0: This is Luke 23, starting in verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Word of the Lord.
1: Thank you. Let me pray and we'll jump in. Um, uh, Jesus, as we are in this season, we pray that you would just open our hearts uh, fresh and anew to who you are, to your ways. God, we confess to you just our own um, inadequacies, our shortcomings, uh, the areas of our hearts have just grown um, dull and hard of hearing in some cases, and maybe in other cases, just straight up hardened. God, we want a posture that is towards you. And in being turned towards you, it's also turned towards the suffering of others. And we feel that. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to what you have to speak to us here this morning. So uh, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see. God, give us a heart that is so quick to respond and receive all that you have for us. So we just entrust this morning in your hands, help me to be able to speak with clarity uh, the things that you have already declared, and we just commit this morning in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So last week we uh, started a series. We're in this season what has been uh, traditionally or historically defined as Lent, and it's a season of 40 days or so prior to Easter. Uh, where we come into celebrating the most uh, joyous, most amazing day of the year, obviously the resurrection of Jesus. Some call it Easter, others call it Resurrection Sunday, whatever. The whole idea is the event. The event is Christ as Lord over death, this brokenness that we call planet Earth, our lives that oftentimes are in shambles or varying degrees of brokenness that we celebrate Jesus as king over all things. This is is the great and amazing good news that we get to celebrate. However, that being said, coming into that moment of celebration, this is a season, historically, where we take pause and we reflect upon what precipitated uh, death, uh, Jesus' resurrection, which is death, his suffering, his crucifixion. We think about this, we consider it, we reflect upon this, meditate upon this. And really, this, is, this can be a healthy thing, because by recognizing the fact that we are broken and frail human beings, that it allows us to, to really deal with the fact that um, we're not superhuman beings, that we are oftentimes prone to have to face death. And, and death is kind of an interesting thing, because on the one hand, we as human beings, especially as American Christians, we do everything that we can in our you know, arsenal to, uh, to ward off, to remove any trace, any feeling, any, any having to think about long the, con- the concept of death. Uh, we narcoticize ourselves. We drink ourselves out of having to face death. We, um, like I said earlier, you know, we binge watch something as a, as a means of Um, just entertaining death away, or the fear of death. And yet, the fact of the matter is, is that death becomes this really real, acute thing that we have to face every once in a while. And I think over the past several weeks, the whole reality of the... Uh, coronavirus scare has been one of those things. Because again, it's not just so much people are fearing, like, oh my gosh, I hope I don't throw up, or I hope I don't get a horrible migraine from this. It's that, oh my gosh, I might die. Like That's kind of like how the media at least plays up into this, or how we tend to think about this. That we go to this worst case scenario, that death is the result of whatever you know malady is on the headlines at that particular season. And that becomes something that we have to face. But the reality is, is that the Christian message is one of the messages that actually addresses head-on the subject of death. It's not afraid to talk about death. It's not afraid to talk about suffering. And people that follow Jesus should not be afraid to face death or look at suffering or to think about it or consider it because the Bible describes that Jesus, again, conquered death. He overcame it. And those that follow Jesus also have this incredible hope that's also afforded to them or given to them or extended to them as well, that we face life on the other side of death. And why this matters? Why does this matter? I guess if you were to kind of put it into a question. Why is this a big deal? Well, the big deal comes from this reality that how you think about death as a human being will ultimately shape how you live, ironically. In other words, how you think about death affects how you think about life. So, for example... If death is the ultimate end, there is nothing, no hope uh, of existence or understanding or life beyond death, then what that means is that it is completely incumbent upon life right now. The pressure is on to make the absolute most of this, you know, 70 years or however long you're, you think you're going to live on this planet because this is all that you're going to get. So when we live with the mindset that there is nothing beyond death, other than just non-existence, then it forces us to kind of put all of this pressure upon what I'm living, what I'm experiencing right now. So therefore, grab as much as you can. Take as much as you can. Indulge in as much sex as you possibly can because you never, you have no guarantee. Get, live as wealthily as you can. Do whatever it is that you can and live life to the fullest because there is no hope or guarantee beyond this life. However, that being said, that has its own side effects. Because those that live that way oftentimes suffer the side effects, the consequences of guilt and shame and these cycles of brokenness and broken relationships that live in their way and loneliness and meaninglessness and all of that goes along with it. That's the fine print that comes along with that narrative. You, You understand what I'm saying, right? It's the fine print. Those, on the other hand, that have hope after death are able to look at this life not as the ultimate end, but as the penultimate end. In other words, we're able to look at this life as a means to the ultimate end. Therefore, it's, uh, you know, some, uh, pause real, real quick, because some would say, well, uh, this, that mindset causes people to live lazy, lazy lives, not doing the best that they can. But that's, I would suggest, that's, that's kind of a flimsy argument, but the point of the matter is, those that have hope after death Look at this life not as something that has to be abused or used to maximize. In other words, your best life is not necessarily now. Because what if, what if you lived under that mindset? Make this life the best life that you can possibly live right now. What, what if you can't? What if you get diagnosed with cancer? What if you find someone that is deeply loved by you died in a car accident and you spend the next... 15 years gripped in uh, the throes of suffering and pain and turmoil, what happens if you go to jail? You know what I'm saying? I'm, without sounding morbid, the fact of the matter is h- how do you live your best life when something prohibits you from living your best life? Again, if this life is all that there is, then you are doomed to a continual status of guilt and shame and failure as a human being, because you will never obtain your best life now. But, if This life is not all there is. If there is a hope of life after death, then it means that this life, in all of its pain and all of its suffering, allows you, it frees you to be able to say, I'm going to live as best as I can, as well as I can, following Jesus as best as I can, but even if I don't get everything that I hope or maximize every relationship that I hope to maximize, there is hope beyond this life. And this is what the story that we're going to look at here this morning begins to afford us and send us in that direction. So we started a series last week going into the season of Lent, of meditations, thinking about specifically the words of Jesus, uh, what we describe as the last or the final words or the final phrases of Jesus on the cross. Next slide. Kind of show you some ways in which Jesus does this. So Jesus speaks a series of seven words or Seven phrases that are recorded for us by the gospel writers. Uh, We looked at last week a word of forgiveness. is where Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Today we're going to take a look at the subject of hope. And uh, you can see the rest of the other words that are communicated or spoken um, of Jesus. Now the words that Jesus speaks here are important. Um, because these are the last or the final words of Jesus. Now, we kind of looked at this a little bit last week, and we said that if you know that you're going to be living the last few hours of your life whatever is going to come out of your mouth in communicating to other people, especially those whom you love, it's going to be the most important stuff that's going to be articulated or summarized in terms of the words that you can muster. And this is exactly what we see with Jesus, that the words that Jesus now speaks are so significant and so important. They have meaning, they have purpose, and we've been taking the the last week, but this week, but then the next following weeks, Um, time to just meditate upon what these words are again as I said today this week we'll be looking at the subject of hope and what I want to do right now as we begin to look at this we see that Jesus speaks this word of hope now again in thinking about the phrase in particular that Jesus says the story kind of picks up a little bit where Jesus is hung on a cross Um, Can we go back to the slide that has the scripture on it? Again, I'll just kind of go through this real quickly. Um, The story that we picked up this morning in the scripture reading, it says that the soldiers mocked him, coming up and uh, offering him sour wine, saying, if you're the king of the Jews. So whatever the mockery that Jesus is receiving is directly linked to his claim that he's a king, that he's a king of the Jews in particular. And the mockery that they are basically offering Jesus is consistent with that, basically saying, hey, if you're the king, kings deserve the best. Let's give you a robe. Let's give you a crown. And so they put Jesus in this robe of purple, um, ultimately, which gets stripped off of Jesus. So if you imagine Jesus on the cross, don't imagine him in anything. Imagine him uh, in, in a holy, sanctified way, uh, stripped naked, 100% naked, hanging on the cross, For open shame purposes, and then ultimately we see him having this crown of thorn driven into his head because what king does not not wear a crown? Jesus is given this crown again. All these are forms of mockery. Uh, The story that we read this morning starts off with this saying that the soldiers they mocked him, and one of the things in particular says that they did to mock him is they offered him this sour wine. Now, in ancient uh, Israel, um, there is a city that we had actually just traveled to about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. Um, it was called bet Shean, And it was one of the most well-preserved ancient cities of the day. Uh, there's no evidence that Jesus was ever in the city, but one of the interesting things that they have in the city is this um, gym, gymnasium, you know, where you'd go work out, but then they had this other, not just work out, but, you know, you study and whatnot. But um, they also had this area, it was a, it was a uh, I can't remember the, the name of it, latrine or whatever, It's an actual bathroom. So you go in there, and it was kind of like public bathrooms and whatnot, and all the debate over all that today. is It was kind of a, a, a mute point way back in the day. But the point of the matter is, is that in the bathroom, uh, you would have this major opening, probably about a room like this size. And then in the midst of it, they would have trees, and so you would do your business and borrow stuff from the trees to take care of your cleaning, cleanliness, and all that. You guys are like, TMI, but you'll get to the point. There, there's one thing that ends up, within that room that they basically said would for, would for sure be there would be sponges. And these sponges would have been used um, in conjunction or with the leaves. And the, the sponge had a specific purpose of wiping oneself after defecating themselves. And so when you, when you read this, I don't know what comes in your mind. We have this traditional Western mindset that they were offering Jesus. It was an act of kindness. Here, Jesus, you're thirsty. Here's a sponge filled with sour wine. That is not the image the sponge that they would have used would have been probably the sponge that the soldier had used to wipe himself from his own defecation, fills it with sour wine vinegar, gives it to Jesus an act of basically pure mockery. You're the king, you're thirsty, we all need something to drink. So I just want you to get the image of what's happening here. Jesus is in the throes of complete torment in the jaws of the machine called Rome being brutalized. Here he is, we're told that he's crucified between two thieves. Uh, The word that's used for thief, um, um, other translators or scholars have identified it, perhaps could be the word brigand, which um, takes on another different shape or nuance, because we typically typically think of thief as someone that, you know, burglars, you know, breaks into your house and steals, whatever. Um, The word that can be used there, that is actually used there, brigand can also have a bigger, broader meaning, um, meaning someone, uh, in other translations, might even use the word insurrectionist. Well, why this is important is because an insurrectionist would have been someone that was basically set up as against Rome, and they would have rallied together troops. So in other words, this would have been high treason. Uh, So whoever these... Quote, unquote, thieves slash brigands were, these were insurrectionists. One on the right hand, one on the left, Jesus in the center. Uh, To fulfill what the scripture says, he was numbered with the transgressors. And here's Jesus in the middle, and in the midst of this mockery, in the midst of this defaming or destruction, uh, death, as some have described it, by, by a million pinpricks upon the son of Jesus, ultimately Leading to his final death and breathing of his last, uh, we're told that one of the criminals who was hung rallied at him, or railed at him, saying, "Are you not the Christ? Save yourself!" Uh, but the other rebuked him, said, "Do you not fear God? Since you are under the exact same sentence of condemnation, and we are indeed justly, but we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done no wrong." And then he says to Jesus, he turns to Jesus, says, "Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, will you remember me?" And Jesus then says the famous words truly I say to you today you'll be with me in paradise now here's what I want to do this morning is I want to just look at three specific things and finish with some final thoughts actually four specific things so you get a bonus you're welcome Three things, number one, we'll take a look at as we go through these. Uh, We'll look at the certainty of Jesus' words, the comfort that Jesus' words offer, and then ultimately the clarity, and then finally we'll break ranks with all the C alliteration stuff. We'll just end with the word hope because this is where everything is heading to. So what I want to look at, first of all, is the certainty of Jesus' words, certainty of Jesus' words. He starts off with this phrase by saying, truly. So whenever Jesus comes on the scene and he speaks, he'll say, in some cases, verily, verily, I say to you, depending on what translation you have, or truly, truly, the word basically just means truly. Like, um, like I'm the author of what's about to communicate. This is, this is not me reinterpreting someone else. This is not the words of another ancient rabbi. These are my words. These are my thoughts. They are distinct to me. Jesus is saying, truly, I say to you. This is a word of authority. And then the idea of certainty is an important one, because... Again, we live in a world that I think, in a lot of ways, has kind of not just gotten here uh, by way of you know hyperdrive. Um, we've gotten here by way of living off of the 2000s, right, and then 2010s, and then the 1990s, and the 1980s, and 1970s, going all the way back. And what I think Christianity has um, gone through over the past 20, 30, 40 years is kind of a, of a fatiguing over this over certitude of many people. And you see sort of a hangover over this in some pastors where there's this constant ongoing certitude that kind of defines their theological presuppositions. In other words, there's an arrogance that is accompanied by this like, this is exactly what is going on here. And so what I think has happened is the church and many younger people have been fatigued by that arrogant certitude and has led them to kind of detaching themselves from all things historic, and now they're adrift. There's no certitude, there's no finitude to their life. In other words, they're floating, free-falling, if you would, through life and trying to make sense of, is there really a God? Is, how do we even know because my pastor, who was a total jerk and a rude guy, was so overly certain over everything, and now you've detached yourself from that, and there may be some good reasons for that, but what's happened is that many have kind of just begun to freefall, and they have nothing to hold on to. Well, I would suggest to you there's a better way, a different way to approach that, that there are some things that we can have a certainty of knowing. So I want to offer a different way of thinking about this, that there are some things that we can anchor the entirety of our souls and our future and our hope and our present and even our past into. And this is what we see even with Jesus. Jesus is offering, and the reason for this is not because of the authority of a pastor who's got like you know multiple degrees behind his name, but this is because this is King Jesus. His word carries weight. And because his word carries weight, that can create in our, in our heart, in our experience, a deep sense of certainty. And I think that's exactly what Jesus intends for us to walk away from with this statement that he makes here, is certain this idea of certainty. He says, truly, I say to you, in other words, what I'm about to communicate to you can be taken to the bank. It's 100% worthy of you anchoring your life and your future and your presence, present and your past into So number one, we see the idea of certainty. Second thing that we see is this idea of comfort that Jesus is going to communicate. He says, "Uh, truly, I say to you, you will be with me. So the comfort that Jesus offers um, ultimately is one that says, you will be with me. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about future or hope or post-death or even this life, the things that you anchor your soul into or your hope into. But what Jesus, the hope of the gospel, is really all about is, again, I think there's been some caricatures within Christianity over the many, many, many years of its existence that has kind of created this um, disembodied future that one of these days, if you say the right prayer, if you kind of have the right combination of words and actions and deeds, and you go to the right church, and you, you know, use the right translation of the Bible, and you do all these right things morally, then somehow you'll, like, crack the code, and you'll go to heaven when you die. But, but then what? what? What does that even mean? Again, you can just simply watch, you know, in my opinion, like, one of the, one of the greatest theological interpretive geniuses of modern ages, uh, Bart Simpson. And I think what they do is they create caricatures. Uh, That's what it is. It's a caricature creating machine that basically says, you want, you want to know what we think about as a collective whole of, of, of the future, of heaven, or the afterlife? Here, here's what it is. Or whatever, you know, subject of politics, whatever. You choose your, choose your topic. Uh, they do a great job of that. But the point of the matter is, and, you know, we laugh. We get a good laugh at it. But the point that we can oftentimes take away from is that if we allow Bart Simpson to kind of create in our mindset the – a, 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 a replacement for what Jesus has to say then what it's going to simply leave with us is this deep sense of cynicism and, and I fear that's where many of us today in the West are we're just we're deeply cynical not because we're reading the words of Jesus finding hope in the words of Jesus but we're reading the words of Jesus and then getting this interpretive lens through the culture at large and we're coming away with a deep sense of despair does that make sense? how are we doing? you guys doing okay All right, it's heavy stuff, but the point of the matter is, is Jesus wants us to understand that the hope of the future is not some form of disembodied state. It's being with me. I mean, I I can spend an entire message just on this topic alone, that the hope of humanity is not another program or a means of trying to work harder or do better, or it's not even, you know, more money... In, the, in our pockets as human beings because, okay, great, give us all more money. Then What are we going to do? We'll probably just blow it the way we blow anything else that we typically have. We just, we're prone towards squandering stuff. But the hope that Jesus offers is a renewed, restored relationship with your maker of which has been soiled and broken and destroyed and ruined all the way to the very beginning. And Jesus says, you will be with me. Now, again, he's speaking to this brigand who has lived his life, and we don't really know anything about detail of his life. And again, if he is indeed an insurrectionist, um, his loyalties were completely devoted to some other hope of kingdom-building activity, which basically just means some other warlord who is about to take up the sword and conquer the big bad evil, which in that day would have been whom? Rome, right? right. Whoever, whoever can sock it to Rome or you know, stick it to the man, that is the one that we're going to rally behind. And this perhaps would have been what this guy was uh, uh, devoted to. His loyalties were devoted to. And yet, here Jesus says, today, you will be with me. And this leads to basically the third thing, which is clarity Jesus says, "Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise." So, hopefully, that 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 clears up everything that you've ever wondered in your mind with regard to the afterlife. There you go, it's paradise. All right. So, are you guys all clear now? No, you're not. I didn't expect so. But so that is one of those reasons why, when we read the Bible, we always have to t- sometimes take a step back and distance ourselves from the cultural lenses in which we read the Bible from. So, you know. Uh, Somebody that comes along and like, I just read the Bible for, its, you know, for what it is. The fact of the matter is that's not entirely accurate or true because for the most part we have been preconditioned to have lenses over the Bible in which we read. So we tend to read it through uh, your childhood experience from the past, or like I said, Bart Simpson somehow echoing in the background, distant background of your mindset. Um, But the point of the matter is is we have this tendency to read it with these lenses. So what I would suggest to you right now is when we ask this question, what does Jesus mean? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, um, there is some controversy I have to point out with regard to does Jesus mean today, meaning right now, within the next few hours, you will be with me in paradise? Or does he mean, today, comma, or today I say to you, comma, you will be with me in paradise. In other words, at some point in the future, uh, you will be with me in paradise. But for for right now, I just want you to have this hope that I'm I'm offering you this, this promise. So in other words, the question oftentimes arises, is Jesus saying that you will be this day, with me, in a state of healing and wholeness and oneness? Or will this be something that will be far off in the future, meaning will you go into some place of, like, afterlife um, um, purgation? In other words, what is commonly known as purgatory, where you will just spend many, many years, hundreds, if not thousands, um, paying for an unrighteous life, Um, or as some... Uh, Christians uh, have also taught that there's like this thing called soul sleep where the, you may die, but then you will spend who knows how long until you will one day wake up in a resurrection state and you'll be with Jesus. Or is it what Jesus is saying, I think, clearly here? And I, I would suggest that it's, it's the latter, that Jesus and, again, church history, uh, early church fathers, people have taught that what Jesus is suggesting here is that this, this is an immediate thing. Today, you will be with me... In paradise. So the question is, is what is paradise that Jesus is referring to? Now, first of all, this is a unique word that does not get a whole lot of traction throughout the New Testament. There's a couple places and ways in which this particular word is used. Um, It is actually used in the book of Revelation. For example, it says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The word paradise that's actually used here was a word that probably could have been imported from Persian language um, or from the Persian concept of like an enclosed garden, um, this garden that's beautiful. It's a place that you would go. It's protected. It's kind of a state of, of bliss. We, we call it San Luis Obispo, right? Um, but this idea where it's just absolutely beautiful. Everywhere you look, it's amazing. Like that, That's home, right? I mean, how amazing is that? Um, it's, we, we live in an incredibly blessed place. In fact, did you know the word Edna? The word Edna actually means Eden. Did you know that? There you go. That's a freebie. You're welcome. Yeah, it does. Um, look it up. But the point that I would make is this. Like Edna Valley, Eden. Eden. Anyways, the point that I would make is at some point it's believed that the, this idea of a paradise that was kind of imported from this enclosed garden uh, began to become synonymous or identified as like a renewed Eden. That this idea that one day God will basically bring back human beings Uh, in a renewed state, into this place of of Eden. Um, Hope, wholeness. Um, Why why is human beings, question, not in the state of of Eden right now? Again, if you're familiar with the the New Testament or the Old Testament story, the very beginning, the the, the newness of the Bible, the book of beginnings called the book of Genesis, it tells the story of, of human beings actually being in the state of this garden, bliss Beauty, goodness, wholeness, peace, shalom would be the word that we would use to describe this. But humanity was given an invitation by God to trust him, to walk with him, which means to align our lives, to synchronize our loyalties with, with whatever it is that God has. In other words, to approach life that says, God, whatever it is that you want me to do, I will do. And whatever it is that you want me to avoid, I'll avoid. You will become God, the one that discerns good and evil for me. What's the alternative? You becoming the one that discerns good and evil. And, and by the way, do you know that the only ones that throughout all history that have, that have been afforded the ability to discern good from evil, get, you know who those people were? We call them kings or lords. They're the ones that got the money, they got the power, they got the weapons, they got the militaristic might, they got the backing, they got the clout, they got the good looks, whatever it is, they got the power. So therefore, their word becomes the definition for a people group maybe even a household, of what's good and what's bad. And what the New Testament is constantly interpreting for us, is showing us, is that human beings, we are not really good at discerning good from bad in and of ourselves. We have these things that are kind of like this engine inside of us that's constantly driving us away from God. We call those desires. Those desires, not necessarily bad, but those desires are deceptive. And they're not always leading us in the right pathway. If you want to think of it this way, it's a broken GPS. It's a GPS that's been demagnetized. It does not lead due north. And if you follow that internal GPS, your desires, and you say stuff like, well, I'm I'm an American. I just want to do what I want to do. It will lead you to a path of deep brokenness. I'm telling you that. I tell you that with a deeply sincere, caring heart for you. It will lead you down a path of despair. And this is what God invites us to is to trust Him. What happens is Adam and Eve, rather than following the heart of God, they turn away from God. They follow their own intuitions and instincts and desires. And it leads them to partake of a tree that God says, do not partake of this tree. And then what ends up happening is God abandons, or leaves them, doesn't abandon, he leaves them out of the Garden of Eden. He causes them to go into exile. And guess what's standing at the front door of that garden? The Old Testament tells us that a cherubim, big, massive, bra- you know, brawny angel or some sort of figure is standing there with a flaming sword, disallowing anyone to pass back into the Garden of Eden. So when the book of Revelation tells us those who overcome will be given entrance back into the Garden of Eden, when we see Jesus saying, today, you will be with me in paradise, what he's saying is that the very last person anyone would expect to be given any degree of recognition or love or affirmation or acceptance into the very heart of things will actually become the first into the kingdom. This this is is what's happening. Jesus is giving this man not only a word of certainty, a word of comfort, a word of clarity, but then finally, as I finish up with this thought, uh, a word of hope. Now, as I want to go through this real quickly as we just consider this in closing, this word of hope Again, this is given to this thief, uh, this brigand, this guy that had given his loyalties and his devotion to perhaps another alternative king, uh, like a war-like, warlord-like king that would have promised victory at the expense of deep bloodshed and violence. However, he gets caught, he gets thrown on a cross, he's going to be publicly executed just like the other brigand and Jesus. And here he is. That final day, two thieves on either side of Jesus. One is cursing, one is uh, mocking Jesus along with the other voices, kind of harmonizing with the rest of that mob mentality and the public opinion of the day. But here, this thief, for whatever reason, something happens, something turns in his heart where he begins to see Jesus in a different light. And then, as a thief, three things happen. Number one, he acknowledges his guilt. And listen to what he says. He says, we, as he's referring to the other He says, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. In other words, we are here because we deserve this. We recognize we have have failed. We failed God. We failed the system. We failed humanity. We failed our families. We are now paying the price of our brokenness. But he, he, he said nothing wrong. And this is affirmed even by Pilate, which, again, plays into the whole political element of this. Like, you can ask the question, why in the world did Pilate actually execute a a known, innocent human being. Uh, That's a whole other teaching. But the point of the matter is the thief acknowledges his guilt. Secondly, he affirms the kingship of Jesus. He says, when you come into your kingdom, something shifted in his heart. This is is an interesting thing to me. Because if you were to show up there at the crucifixion that particular day, and you were part of the mob mentality, uh, you would be tempted to see in the middle of two brigands one that looks just like the rest of the brigands. You would see a naked, failed, Messiah-like figure who had a crown of thorns and a sign that read over his head, the king of the Jews. You'd see, perhaps, Jesus, as he's there, as as was oftentimes common of crucified criminals, defecating himself, unable to keep even any of his bodily fluids in himself, that this is Jesus. You would see a failed Messiah figure. That's what you would see but this brigand sees something entirely different. You get this. He sees a king that's been wrongly accused and is dying. But even though he's dying, he's a king nonetheless. Isn't it interesting how two different people can have totally different opinions and viewpoints of one thing? Isn't it interesting how you and I, we can see one thing and it seems obvious to everybody because it's like that's, that's the obvious conventional way of, of interpreting what we see. But sometimes there's a story beneath the story that we are completely oblivious to. And that's exactly what this thief identifies, that this man is truly the king of the Jews. He's truly the one that has come to set things to right, that which is totally off. And then finally, we see that there's hope as a thief. He only possessed small faith. There's, there's a lot of interesting things about this because um, notice what is not mentioned about this thief. He doesn't go to Bible study. He doesn't up, sign up for a community group. He doesn't go through church initiation. He doesn't get baptized. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't do good works. He doesn't hear a sermon. He doesn't listen to podcasts. He doesn't read a book. He doesn't do any of this stuff. He just has faith. How big is his faith? It's pretty small. But it's just enough to where Jesus says, today, you will be with me in a place that's been forbidden for all humanity until this moment. Today, I offer you hope. I want to finish with a quote, and I'm done. Spurgeon, one of the great preachers, uh, has a whole teaching series on this called uh, Christ's Words from the Cross. So we are super creative and designing the name for this and uh, anyways um borrowed a bunch of this but anyways here's a great quote from C.H. Spurgeon he says is who is this that enters the pearl gate at the same moment as the king of glory who is this favored companion of the redeemer is it some honored martyr is it a faithful apostle is it a patriarch like Abraham or a prince like David it's none of these behold and be amazed at sovereign grace He that goes in the gate of paradise with the king of glory is a thief who is saved in the moment of death. He is saved in no inferior way and received in the bliss in no secondary style. Verily, there are last which shall be first. Why is this story so amazing to us? Because it offers us all of these things. Confidence, comfort, a sense of hope. I don't know how you think about the afterlife or how you even think about the words of Jesus. My hope would be this morning that no matter what type of place you find yourself in this life, that you would at least take into consideration the words of Jesus and let them begin to reshape and reorient and reframe the way that you live. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, this matters because how you think about death, the very thing that we oftentimes don't like to think about, will shape the way that you live. This thief, even though bound, became free. <laughs> the other thief, though bound, was still bound. And the hope of what's extended to him is also extended to us. He becomes sort of this representative figurehead for all of us, because all of us as human beings, we've betrayed Jesus. This is not just like a, some guy way back then or another human being. All of us are guilty of this. And we can try to deny this or turn away and think something else, but the fact of the matter is all of us as human beings have turned our backs upon the one who loves us and gave himself to us, but thus equally invited to trust Jesus. And as we do, given the same degree of hope and confidence and comfort that this thief was offered. So... As I close, I want to invite my friend Vicki to come on up and she will lead us in some prayer, some closing thoughts as we worship. Worship team will come on up now as we then begin to go into the time of communion, eating the bread, drinking the cup, and reflecting upon what God has in store for us here this morning.
2: I had a picture in my mind's eye as Brian was talking of a wounded animal. And we're so often like animals when we're wounded. we What do animals do? They protect that wound. Even though you know you can do something to help them, that animal will fight to protect that wound. And I just felt you know, that's what we do. We protect our wounds, don't we? And sometimes in doing that, we, we don't allow Jesus to get close. We push him away. And I just really felt the Lord's heart this morning that he is the only one that can really see and understand our pain. Only he knows where it came from, and he's the only one with the power to heal it, because he sees and he knows. So I felt this morning that the Lord just wanted to ask us, what is your pain? Is it the shame of your own deeds like the thief on the cross? Or is it shame or pain that's come from something someone else has done to you? Are you grieving death? Are you afraid of death? Do you feel like your life is marked with suffering? Why can't anything ever go right for me? What's that all about? What is your pain? And I just wanted to encourage you this morning like the thief, he came to that place in his life at the end of his life where he was willing to acknowledge his pain and that Jesus was the only one that could help him with it. So this morning, let's just bow our heads. You don't have to tell anybody else about your pain if you don't want to. But there will be people up here who are more than happy to pray with you and bring you to, together before the cross. So just pray with me. If this resonates with you, just agree with me as I pray. And then I just want to invite you to the table to take communion. Let's do business. When God speaks these things to our heart, and if your heart is pounding or you're sick to your stomach, this is the now's the time. Don't push him away. He's the only one that can fix this. So, Lord, we just come before you this morning in humility, and we're so grateful that you know exactly what's going on with us. You know where it hurts? and you're the only one holy spirit that has the balm not only to excise that wound but to but to heal it so we just want to open ourselves to you this morning and say we acknowledge the pain and whatever that pain is i just encourage you in your heart right now identify it tell him what it is this is where it hurts lord this is what i'm afraid of please Come to me in that place. Holy Spirit, we're just inviting you now. We don't want to hurt anymore. We don't want to be afraid anymore. We give you permission to do what needs to be done. Speak to us, Lord. Heal us. Forgive us. Free us.